Well, uh, if you notice right here, we have a bunker. If you've been with us throughout this month of January, we had a bunker representing this fallout shelter where I can hide away from the world. This past weekend, we had a funeral. We had a funeral yesterday for Paul Newton's mom, so we put up this, you know, this cover, this black cover, so it wouldn't be so obvious during the funeral because it's hard to just take this bunker off. So, you know, it was uh, actually pray for Paul Newton and his family because uh, they lost somebody they loved dearly, their mom. And it was a great service, honestly, because this lady loved God. And it's neat to do a funeral and somebody loves God. It's just easy, honestly. As I was coming in, as I was leaving yesterday, I'm like, oh, man, should I? You know what? I kind of like that on there because it's like a shroud. And I want that to represent that really this message we're going to talk about today, you should never go into your bunker about these things. You should never hide. We need to, exactly like Missy said, we need to be vocal about these things because they matter. Today's title is Sanctity, and it's going to be a sanctity of different things. But before I get to that, I was... I was uh, after I did all my research and I was putting together my sermon, I'm like, how can I illustrate what I'm trying to say? Because there's, there's so much material, and it's such volatile material. How do I present it in a way that, number one, makes sense, is organized, and will show you the seriousness of it? And as I was thinking about it, I, I remember reading an article, The Ten Scariest Bridges in the World. And one of these bridges is called the Mayu Viaduct. In French, it's Mayu Viaduct. And this is a bridge that is built across uh, the Tarn River in southern France. It's one of the most beautiful bridges you ever saw. But in some of the pictures, it's kind of like driving through the clouds because it's the tallest bridge as well in the world. It's an engineering, honestly, it's an engineering, not just a feat, but some engineers said this is, it was an impossibility the way they structured it. They put these piers or like uh, pylons in the middle that have cables coming out that support 36,000 tons of concrete and steel. And winds will sometimes come through this valley at 120 miles an hour, hurricane force winds sometimes. Like this is, this is not going to, nobody can make this. The problem is they had a, uh, a highway coming from France, Paris, down to Barcelona, and Barcelona had it coming the other way, and it would meet in this town called Milou which is in southern France, and sometimes the traffic would be so bad in this little village, it would take six hours just to get through the city. So they're like, what do we do? So they came up with this bridge. Took four years to build. That also is a feat. Let me show you some of the schematics a little bit. Two of the piers are taller than the Eiffel Tower. The bridge is five times more steel than the Eiffel Tower. And the reason I bring up the Eiffel Tower, it's in France, and the same people that built the Eiffel Tower built this bridge. But the strength of this bridge it is going to be built to last over 120 years, and it's completely dependent upon the integrity of each one of those pylons. Everything rests on those pylons. Actually, there's seven of them, but the four main ones are in the valley. And the whole strength of the bridge is dependent on the integrity, the soundness of those pylons. If you want to see something interesting, go on YouTube and just uh, type in the Milu Viaduct, and it's the most fascinating way they built this. It's overwhelming. I was thinking about this, and I'm saying that 
is exactly what I want to communicate. If you imagine life being a bridge, go to the next line, next slide. If you imagine life, your life from death, from the womb to the tomb, being the roadway or the bridge, there are pylons God has set up, four piers he's set up, that are going to sustain it. And you are not to mess with those. The word sanctity means set apart, holy, but also inviolable. That means don't do violence to things, to these things. Don't mess with them. So we're going to talk about four things that, I, that God talks about very specifically as things that he wants to be set apart and holy. Ideas, institutions sometimes we call them, issues that are very volatile. But what I'm going to communicate today is this. Do you want to have a God-pleasing life? Do you want to live in a culture that's God-pleasing and is blessed? I mean, really. Then uphold sanctity. If you don't, then destroy these because once every one of these pylons are destroyed, so is your life and culture. And we'll talk through it. But to talk about it, I want you to go to a culture that didn't believe this. It's found in Genesis 19. I'm going to show you the opposite of a blessed culture. This is the culture. This is the city, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I'm going to read their story. I'm sure you know the story, but I want you to look at two things. Number one, what things do they not treat with holiness, respect, sanctity? Second thing, because they don't treat them that way, how does God feel about it? Because that's really our issue. How does God really feel about these things? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you go to chapter 19, it's a tragedy. It's a Greek tragedy. It's a terrible situation. In the end of chapter 18, God came up to Abraham because he loved Abraham. He was Abraham's friend. And Abraham had a nephew named Lot who lived in this city. So God goes up to Abraham and said, Hey, Abe, I'm going to destroy the city where Lot lives. And Abraham said, makes a deal with him. And he keeps bargaining with God, saying, Well, if you find 20, 10 people. So if you look at the end of chapter 18, verse 32, this is the final discussion Abraham has with God, with Yahweh. Then he said, that's Abraham, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there, ten righteous people. God answered to him and said, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy the city. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Then we get to chapter 19. And who was talking to God were these angels along the road. Actually, there's three of them. One of them people identify as Jesus, theophany, meaning Jesus pre-incarnate came as an angel. That's who Abraham possibly is talking to, is Jesus himself. But it just, it just designates him as the Lord. So we get to chapter 19. Abraham and the Lord are gone, but these two angels keep going, and they're going to investigate the city to see if they can find ten righteous people. This is an investigation survey. Starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. It's their investigation survey. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So he's sitting outside the walls of the gates of the city. When Lot saw the angels, he rose to meet them and bowed himself 
with his face to the earth, and he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. They're doing investigative work of the city to see if they can find tents. So they say, No, Lot, we're not going to hang out with you tonight because we're, we're going to just hang in the town square. But Lot pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. He made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and there they ate. But before they lay down or went to bed, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last man, surrounded the house, and they called the Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. That's how the ESV says it, that we may know them. Technically, they're saying that we may have sex with them. That's what they're saying. Lot went out to the man at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Kind of sick, isn't it? Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. He's become the judge. Basically, Lot, you're kind of a visitor. Now you're telling us what to do. Who do you think you are? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Meaning, the men, the angels brought, them, brought Lot in, shut the door. Then the angels struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house both small and great. The angel said to Lot, have you anyone, or the men in the city said, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters? No, the, I'm sorry, the angel said that. Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone else having a city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy it because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord, he's about to destroy the city. Look, listen to how his sons-in-laws respond. He seemed to his son-in-law to be jesting. Oh, come on. God's not that serious. Well, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot. They took him out of the city, said, escape for your life, and then they brought him out, and they destroyed the city. Three things I want you to notice about this society. In verse 5, we see utter sexual perversion. The men were perverts. They wanted to lie with these angels. Second thing we see, there was fam major family devaluation where he's like, you know what, don't do this, but I'll send my daughters. Like, where's the... Lot, seriously? And the third thing we see is just indifference to the opinions of God. Indifference. <laughs> Come on. He wouldn't do that to us. God doesn't. How does God feel about this? He sends burning sulfur. He sends burning sulfur because they are sexually perverted, because their families are a mess, and because they really don't care what God thinks. That's then, but it's not like that now. Is it? 
Well, what I want to talk to you about is how to have a society that doesn't bring burning sulfur. How to have a society that really upholds sanctity. And the way I want us to see it is like that bridge. What are those four pylons? Let's go to the next slide. The first one, when we say sanctity, instantly what comes into our mind is exactly how Missy said it. Instantly sanctity of life. A life. More importantly, we think of a, a baby born in a womb, conceived in a womb, nine-month gestation comes out as a little baby. God says about that human being, according to Scripture, when it comes to human beings, go to the next thing he says, you shall not take their life. Shall not murder. You shall not murder just a baby, but anybody. If I, I, he doesn't want me to go up to Doug Curtis and just stab him in the chest. That's a violation of his law. What, just a side note, it's interesting in, in the Old Testament or in God's Decalogue, that's his Ten Commandments, he often uses these negatives. Thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that. And a lot of people are like, look how negative God is. He's so mean and he puts all these tough stipulations. Actually, I was reading this book that said, I am so thankful God couched it like that because in a way, it gives us freedom, but it tells us what the boundaries are. Remember when God put Adam in the garden? He said, I made all of these trees of the field, all of this fruit. You can have all of it. There's just one I don't want you to touch. In the same way, you can drive on this viaduct. You can enjoy the view. Just don't mess with the pylon because everything will come crumbling down. Thou shalt not touch it. Do not touch life. God gets more explicit in Genesis 9-6. After the flood and then he kind of Noah's reestablishing culture again, he says, whoever sheds the blood of men, by men shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. This is an issue of capital punishment. If you kill somebody, the right punishment is death. The reason why is because it's not because we don't understand forgiveness of everything. It's because this life is of such value. If you choose to take somebody's life, you have forfeited your own because we value human life. That's Genesis 9:6. So let's I'll just uh, let's just touch on it real quick. And I'm gonna and I could say hundreds and thousands of things, but let's just be very clear. Let's go to the next slide. I'm just gonna give you quick truths on life. And you can, take the, you can take the inferences from this. But let's just go rock solid. Number one, truth of life, conception, a sperm and an egg, always end up being a human life. Always. Always. Well, let's call it fetus. It's, if, you let it, if you let it go to maturity, it will always end up being a human life. It won't be a monkey, it won't be an alligator, it won't be a puppy. It will be a human being. That's the truth. Second thing. Uh, well, what I want to say about conception, it begins, well, actually, let's just say every baby's priceless. God said they're fearfully and wonderfully made. They're made in his image. They bear his image, which is priceless. We just read that in Genesis. But go to the next one. When a pregnancy is willfully terminated, it is murder. I want you to read something very interesting. Go with me to Exodus chapter 21. 
Exodus chapter 21. And these are laws that God gave for how the Israelites are to mete out justice, how they are to give back payment when, when you uh, to offer restitution, what the payment is. But Exodus 21, look at verses 22 to 23. When a man strikes, or when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child comes out, that means when the baby's born prematurely. But if there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as a woman, woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. So if the baby has a premature birth, but it's okay, there should be fines probably for taking care of that baby, emotional damages, other things like that. Verse 23, but if there is harm to that baby that's in the mother's womb, then you shall pay life for life. And then he goes on, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound. Those other ones, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, those are just saying the punishment needs to equal the crime. You don't go, you don't go two eyes for one eye. It's, you have to be equal to what you lost. But if you lose that baby, it dies life for life. But that baby's still in the womb. It's still not a viable human being yet. No, not according to God. The third thing I just want you to just think about for one second, go ahead, the last one. 1973, Roe v. Wade, since that 58 million babies have been aborted in the United States. That's bad. As I was doing a lot of research on it, I don't have time just to go into this. I want to go through God's whole sanctity issue. I just want to focus on one little Subject. Listen, go to the next thing. I just want you to listen to this. The CDC reports that 85% of abortions are from unmarried women. Women living with a partner to whom they are not married account for 25% of abortions. I have a bottom on there. 1% of women report that they are survivors of rape. That's really the argument for why we should allow Planned Parenthood and everybody else to, because, you know, rape, what if they're raped? And, women might die. And you'll hear a lot of politicians say, I want it to be rare. No, you really don't. That's not true. That's a smokescreen. Sounds good for political purposes. But I want to give one more, and this is not a prejudice thing. It's just the truth. Go to the next thing. In our own state of Michigan, 95% of babies that are aborted are from, in the black culture, are from unmarried women. So what, what happens is we often just focus on life. But I want to go one pylon before we get to life. And I think this is something that we don't talk about that much. Go to the next one. So before we go down the road and get to the pylon of life, something always should come before that. That is incredibly important. It's like it's no big deal. It's called the sanctity of marriage. This is a hard one. Listen to what God says in his word. You shall not commit adultery. That means you shall not sleep with somebody else's wife. And a lot of people say, see, but that's just adultery. That's not talking about sleeping with somebody before you're married. Well, then you can go to Hebrews chapter 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, meaning the marriage bed is fine. Those are the boundaries. Those are the parameters to have sex. That's a good thing. 
where God will judge the sexually immoral, those are people who have sex outside of marriage, even before they're married. And adulterous, those are people who have sex with somebody else's partner. The sexually immoral also includes male with male and female with female. Those are the parameters. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Why not? Go to the next slide. Because this baby needs something desperately before it's born. This baby needs something desperately. First thing it needs is a mom. That baby needs a mom. That baby needs a mom that doesn't think success is more important than life. No, Missy, you aren't invaluable. No, Mom, you are the most precious gift I think God has given to us. You should have been in the Newton's funeral yesterday if you don't believe that. Their mom has impact on not just their kids, but the next generation, and in the great-grandkids, and in the great-great-grandkids. Their mom. Mothers are incredibly important. There's another thing that is needed is a dad who loves the mom that will stay with the mom. And in that home is God's great design. I just want to say three things that I was thinking about with regards to this. The first one I would say is this. You can't replace, you cannot replace a mom with another mom. I mean a, a mom with another dad. And you can't replace a dad with another mom. It's not designed like that. A baby needs, a baby needs a dad. A baby needs a mom. My son needs to know how a dad feels. My son needs a father to actually give him a hard edge, a hard side. But he needs a mom so when it's been tough, he can go home and she can listen to him and give him emotional comfort. I want, to, I want to give you this illustration. I was thinking about this, either this baby that only has one parent or a baby who has a dad and a dad or a mom and a mom. Let's say a guy walks in and he only has one leg. That man is a human being. He's a human being. He has one leg. He's a, he's... But don't you think that guy would like two legs? Isn't it, not, isn't it a good thing to have two legs? Like if he had an option, wouldn't it be great to have two legs? Kids that always have two legs? You can run when you have two legs. You're, you're not more of a person, but you, you are more human. You are more, not more human, but you are more designed the way you were supposed to be designed. It's the same way with a mom and a dad. But we like to act like it's no big deal. A kid has been designed to need a mother and a father. Or a, a person who walks with a prosthetic leg. That, it's okay, but he'd still like to have two great legs. You can attach another dad on there. Two dads, that's just not God's design. It's not his design. And when it's not designed right, it's like a guy with one leg or a guy without two good legs. Second thing I'll say about this is a mom and a dad's objective is to raise up a legacy that's blessed that will be worshipers of God, that will fulfill the mandate of go be fruitful and multiply, and they are the ones of a legacy of people that will bring in godly offspring. 
A legacy is something else. Like yesterday, seriously, when, when you're at the Newton's funeral, you have people, you have their sons and daughters who would say, man, the grandkids would say, we would know, we know where grandma lived and we'd go over to the house and we were safe there. We'd go over to the house and we would hear instruction about God. We'd go over to the house and they would tell us the truth. There's a legacy that God loves to bless. That's his design. But here's the third thing I'll say. And this is something you don't hear too often. That right there is how God has designed discipleship. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Wherever you're going, imprint on your child's heart the word of God, whether you're walking down a road, whether you're sitting, whether you're sleeping at night. Children who have a mom and dad that train them in the Lord will be whole. I think often, you know, we always try to come up with these unique discipleship plans. We need youth pastors, but really what they are, to me, a youth pastor is really we have... I used to say, even as I've been a youth pastor, we've kind of, we need youth pastors because dads have often jumped the ship. So youth pastors kind of like this jerry-rigged thing to help families without a good dad or home life. So a youth pastor comes along and offers support, but he can't offer what a dad can offer or a mom can offer. Even one-week Bible study classes don't offer what 40 hours a week talking having your mom there, your dad, home at night talking about the things of God. and being good. This is God's discipleship plan. But we don't, ah, marriage isn't that big a deal anymore. Sanctity of marriage. The third thing I want to talk about, because normally, go ahead to the next slide. Before we actually get to the next one, before you get married, the key ingredient in marriage before a husband and wife come together is love. But this is another word that's been violated. God's love is different than man's love. And I'll say, I'll just tell you what, before a couple gets together, this is not the kind of love that should bring you together. The first one, love is not a moment of pleasure. If you're with somebody and they say, be with me sexually because I love you, they are lying to you because that's not love. Love does what's best for you, and love does not put you in a position of wrath before God. Do you understand that? This is something I don't think people understand. We, we really use this word love to say, oh, I love you so I can be with you. But really, if I love you, I want you to have what's best specifically when it comes to God. And if I really love you, I'm going to wait because if I sleep with you now, I am actually inviting God's wrath upon you. It's not a moment of pleasure. Love, love is always patient. Second thing is this. Love is not an experiment. It's just not. Let's live together for a little bit, see how it goes, and then, you know, this is the new thing. It, well, it's been, it's actually common now. And I'm just, I'm not here to bash on people that are living together. I'm just telling you, this is, this is what even the New York Times says. Statistics are two-thirds of couples that live together are less, less satisfied than married couples. New York Times says when people live together, there's always unspoken agendas, and it's always 
they would say nine times out of ten, the woman is the one hoping this ends in marriage. Which means a lot of times the guy is living together because as one person said, why buy the cow when you're getting the milk for free? And so there's what's called unspoken agendas, where the guy sees it as a test, but low cost. I don't have to put a lot of investment in this, where the woman's like, this is going to end in marriage, but it doesn't a lot of times, and they're shattered. And even the New York Times said there's higher divorce rate from people who lived together before they got married. But I'll, I'll give two more reasons why living together isn't really a good thing, because it's sin. And really, living together is the opposite of love. Again, it's using somebody for my advantage, where I really want true love is doing things that are for their advantage. Listen how Jesus loved us. This is love. Christ was sent to die. And love is not a mutually beneficial contract, meaning let's, let's uh, get married, but if we don't like it, you can bow out. Just, we'll just end it. We'll play, play house for a while. But if it doesn't work, we'll end. Jesus gave everything. He, he died. That's how much he loved us. He was fully invested. There was this, uh, oh, I saw this one photo one time where underneath it, it was this older couple, and they had been married for 50 years, and underneath it, the person said, I asked my grandparents, how did they make it for 50 years and still stay together? And a grandfather said, well, the difference is because in our generation, when something was fixed, we, something was broken, we fixed it. We didn't just throw it away. The next pylon, and really is um, often, before, we, before I talk about it, you know, there's a lot of discussion. People say, when it comes to voting, you... Yeah, when it comes to voting, you're just a one-issue one voter when you just talk about life, the sanctity of life. What they mean by that is you need to have somebody that cares for the rest of somebody's life. Specifically, a lot of times that's for, you know, taking care of the poor. We talked about the poor last week. You can go back to last week's message. But I, I want to say we don't rarely, we rarely talk about this, that there is a sanctity of private property that Scripture talks about. If you don't believe me, have you ever had your house broken into and things stolen? Ever. Our first year of marriage, somebody broke into our apartment, stole our TV, our VCR, and went through and looked for all our jewelry. Lucky we're poor, we don't have jewelry, so they didn't get anything in there, but they stole it. And I can remember my wife and I just moved there, and my wife's like, I hate, I don't feel safe. I want to get out of here. I'm vulnerable. Listen to how God puts it. You shall not steal. Don't touch other people's stuff. That means grab it physically. Then, listen to what he says later, don't covet. That means wanting what other people have with your eyes and your heart. There is something about God gave to each person his lot. Don't take their stuff. Paul calls this issue really the way he puts it in Timothy. If you go to the next slide, he calls it, we need to live with contentment. If you have food, water, raiment, roof over your head, thank God for that. You should be content. He says, because when you're not, it leads to all kind of evil. 
And contentment is what keeps, I think, a society peaceful. But there are things that break into this contentment. One is called envy. I want what you have. I want what you have. This is where politically conservatives, see, don't be envious of other people. That guy gets a great salary. You shouldn't care. There's some truth to that. There's another thing that breaks contentment, and it's greed. Greed is hoarding God's gifts, thinking they're just yours. Deuteronomy 8, when you go in the land and God gives you all this milk and honey, be careful that you don't say, look at what my hands did for me. Luke 12, don't be like the fool who stored everything in a barn and God called, said, today I want your life, you fool. Don't be like James 8 where it says the rich man that hoarded everything and didn't pay his guys on time, God's wrath is on that man. And this is where the socialist, the, the left side of politics is. Like, look at how people hoard. In a way, they're right. But the problem is this is something between you and God. When God gives you something, he wants to bless you, but he also wants you to bless others. Third thing that destroys contentment is debt. Proverbs is clear on this. When you want to get something now that you can't afford, it leads to slavery. These three things have wrecked our society. Wrecked them. These three things cause me to hate my political opponent on the other side. And it's all, this is all sin, all of it. God wants to deal with us individually. I was reading a very interesting article, and they, these researchers did, why did America become so economically prosperous so quickly? And the issue was, they said, here's the main issue, is because in America there is title to your real estate. You have title, personal ownership. In a lot of European countries and African countries, you don't own land. It's not yours. It's, you don't have a title. So when I go into a deal with you, because I own my land, if... I renege and I say, you can have my land, it will change title. And what that does is that makes people more responsible. That personal property actually caused prosperity, saying good laws and titles are what allowed America to economically flourish. It's a fascinating thing. But the point is, don't steal or covet. Then there's one more. So you have marriage, life, property, and there's one more, and it's related to life, but I'm going to kind of extrapolate it and call it the sanctity of dignity. Dignity of human worth even as it gets older. It's exactly what Missy talked about. Listen to what God says. He tells us to honor our father and our mother. This doesn't necessarily mean they are always tell us what to do. What this does mean, though, is we are to respect their dignity, to respect who they are, to show them respect for who they are. In the book of Timothy, often you'll hear, if a man does not provide for his own house, he's worse than an infidel. 
So people will use that to why we should have investment banking and all this kind of stuff. But really, if you read before that, he's talking about the way you treat your widowed mom, or the way you treat your older mom and dad. He says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this is pleasing to God. Yeah, but I want them to have a quality of life, and if they're hurt, just, I don't care if they die. Or if they're draining all of the money. Or they're draining my time. That I believe if we are made in the image of God, we have to keep showing that that person is priceless. My sister, Laura Lee, is now going to turn about 58 years old. She is the mind of a six-month-old baby. My mom, every day, still changes her diapers, has her living in her house, takes care of her. Because my mom really believes my sister's made in the image of God. Has that been easy? It's been horrible. A lot of people send their daughter off that has Rett syndrome into a home. The average age of a girl with Rett syndrome is 17 years old. Because they need love and care. My mom sacrificed. I thank God for my wife. My wife's mom had Parkinson's for 12 years of her life. The last seven, it was hell. She was like in a cage. She couldn't move. My wife would go take care of her. Her dad would take care of her. My wife would come home and she was spent because she loved her mom. I remember the day her mom died. It was excruciating, but I could tell my wife, Michelle, you pleased God by honoring your mom all these years. We have this disdain for dignity that a life isn't have any dignity if it no longer can think. All, it, all the person does is babble and they lose their mind. It's not, wait a minute, they still carry the image of God. And a lot of times I think God wants us to learn love. There's always comes a question when you talk about dignity. Go to the next slide. So am I saying then that we should never, like suicide is, suicide is wrong, but is it unforgivable? And there have been a number of suicides in the last three years that have been pretty high profile in our community. Is suicide unforgivable? Some churches teach that it's the unforgivable sin. There's really one unforgivable sin. It's that you don't receive the mercy of God through Christ. But I would say this. No, mercy, suicide is not the unforgivable sin. However, it is an arrogant attempt to enter the presence of God uninvited, thinking that I know when it's my time. You don't have that right. God does. It's arrogant to think that it's your right to think so. It's funny. If you want to watch something interesting, Derek uh, Max sent me this thing on my Facebook about this guy that jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. Since the Golden Gate Bridge was made, 2,000 people jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and died. 19 survived, and he was one of the survivors. And they interview him. And he said how he's walking over the bridge and everybody, they didn't even notice him. Nobody cared. That's the thing about people who want to commit suicide. They, everything comes collapsing and they just think there's no hope. All they want is a release from pain. Psychologists said the problem with people who want to commit suicide, they can't really consider consequences because they're so overwhelmed by their immediate pain. They're not thinking right. This guy said he got on the bridge, 
And he said, the moment my feet left the bridge, I regretted what I did in the depth of my soul. He interviewed all the 19 people that jumped, and he said they all said the same thing. The moment they made that choice to end their life, they realized it was the worst decision they ever made. It's fascinating, after he landed, he said he landed in the water, all of his bones in his body were broken, the, the uh, Coast Guard picked him up, and the guy looked at him and said, you are a living miracle. And then he noticed all these people started gathering around him, people that he never knew loved him, always loved him, and they were always there. He just needed to reach out, but he didn't. Because he closed into himself saying, nobody cares about me and nobody cares. But he said, everybody cares. You've got to just tell them. Is suicide unforgivable? God has mercy through his son for everything. I want to... Um, I just want to end with this because I could talk about these things forever and I wanted to be shorter. But those are the pylons God has set up that he does not want to be violated. He doesn't want the issue of marriage to be violated. He doesn't want life to be violated. He doesn't want private property to be violated and dignity of life to be violated. Don't touch them. That's not yours. I was talking with Pedro, my good friend Pedro. And I heard him talking to my daughter about this tradition in Mexico. It's, how do you say that, Pedro Rosa de Reyes? It's the king's bread, right? Or king's cake. And they, this is a tradition, a Mexican tradition, where they have this, during the Feast of the Epiphany, that's when the wise men saw Jesus, they, they have this cake, and they cut pieces of the cake and give it to everybody. And inside one of those pieces is a little plastic baby Jesus. And whoever gets that baby Jesus has to, the next month, make a dinner with the mom, and they're responsible for the dinner. Pedro said, as a little kid, they loved getting that little baby. It's like you won a prize. But he said, when I got older, I didn't want to win it anymore because I realized the responsibility that comes with it. I didn't want it. And I feel this is exactly what sanctity is. When we're little kids, we think it doesn't matter. But when we get older, we realize the responsibility and the consequences of tearing down these piers is unbelievable. Don't touch them. Don't touch them. It's not a game. It's just not a game. We have the responsibility as Christians to get out of the bunker and start speaking up and saying, people are being destroyed. When I heard you say, Missy, talk about this post-abortive counseling, I was talking to a man that said, you will not believe how much guilt there is for people who have had abortions. They never talk about it, but it's killing people killing it. I just want to pray. I see people are gathering out there, but I just want you to think about these things, talk about it with your family, your home fellowship group, in your own heart. Where do you really stand on these pylons? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for this day. May your grace go with us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.